You're listening to the Makers and Mystics Podcast Summer Series, Episode 2. I'm John Mark McMillan, and I'll be your guest host for today's show. My guest today is music manager Jay King. Over the past two decades, Jay has played almost every role in the music business from artist, tour manager, band manager, record executive, and today he works with a diverse variety of artists and influencers, including Johnny Swim, Ian Morgan Cron, Propaganda, and more. As a reminder, patrons of the podcast can enjoy additional interview segments and exclusive patron-only content. You can find out more about this at patreon.com slash makersandmystics or in the show notes of this episode. If there are two things I've learned in my 15 years in music, it's that number one, fans don't owe you anything, nothing at all. You have to earn their attention and their respect. And number two is that no one succeeds just because they're good. You have to be good to step up to the plate. But beyond that, it's really about hard work and good decision making. And I'm here talking to my good friend, Jay King. And Jay is one of those behind the scenes creatives who make stuff work for artists, writers, podcasters. And I'm sure you're doing more than that. Jay is an artist manager But he's been working behind the scenes in the music industry for decades with some of your favorite artists. And Jay, like I said, is a good friend. And believe it or not, he might be the reason I'm talking to you today. He might be the reason you even want to listen to me because Jay was the first person who reached out and said, Hey, John Mark, you know, you might, (laughs) your talents and your skills might reach further than your local community. And Jay's the first person who uh, signed me to a record deal back in the day and taught me the ropes. So, dude, it's an honor, man, to talk to you, bro. And I always love having conversations with you. So this is like fun on like a hundred different levels. Do anyway, right? Exactly. uh, Our kind of late night processing, or roll through (laughs) the city, or yep. Just random phone calls. No, man, I appreciate doing it. And just to get to catch up with you and get to talk is, is always like super fun for me. So yeah, I, me all too. the intro stuff, I will say, I think you would be doing just fine without me ever meeting you because <laughs> I just believe in who you are and what you do. So, but I appreciate uh-huh. that because it definitely was a fun little season that we had and just tracking you down on Facebook. <laughs> uh, my showing up at your oh that's right it was my space oh uh, you just showed our age but yes my <laughs> and then sitting in that coffee shop waiting like you're going on an awkward first date was yeah uh, hilarious so but yeah, no thanks for fun. having me man it was, it was awesome. totally an unexpected season for me i don't know that i ever expected any of that stuff would have happened and it was so fun dude i would do it again so fast Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, we were both in a very unexpected season because I had just taken on this role in this world that I was not familiar with. But, you know, yeah. I knew that I was like immediately just struck by your songwriting, struck by what you do and just still was at that crazy, like, I don't know, 
let's just reach out. Let's see what's going on. Like yeah. I'll fly to you type of thing. <laughs> this is so insane. And that's why I half didn't believe you were legit because I was like, what's he flying here to me? No one legit wants to come out here <laughs> and see me. But what's crazy is like that song, everyone said that song, that no one was going to sing that song. And you oh, for years were like, this song, people are going to sing this song. And people said, no one will sing How He Loves. People said they will not, not sing it. Like these are all the things I'm, I was told. And remember, at that point, I was like, I don't even know what congregational is. I didn't know that there was like, yeah. a standard that had to be met. I just was like, this is something that I think is really important for where I was at in life, but also really important for what I thought that my role was to do yep. and contribute. But I had to like run around and print out all the lyrics to your songs and like, <laughs> you know, well, don't you think this is a little too sexual? Don't you think that's a little too this? It's just, you know, we're not going to name names, but even other <laughs> worship leaders would look me in the face and go, dude, we would never sing this song. And I guarantee you some of the people that told me that have already sang that song, cut that song, probably oh, put it on their project. We were a little rebellious. But in a good way, not not yeah. in a break rules way, you know. Well, let me tell you this, and hopefully this is like a feather in both of our cap, and this isn't me like trying to flex. But I saw a video two weeks ago of Justin Bieber singing that song. No so way. All those people said, and he was singing it in a church. So all those people who said, no one will sing that song. No one will play that song. And the number one artist in the world. In the world. Like you go to Spotify, he has a one with a circle by his name. Was singing that song. The song that people told you no one was ever going to sing. I love it. And he's he's singing it. <laughs> he's it might, singing it might have it. taken us however many years, you know, but I think it... Um, <laughs> I gotta find that video. My daughter would flip out, but I'm actually a Bieber fan too. So yeah. I, I have a lot of respect for <laughs> what he's doing I'll, and what he's been doing. Yeah, dude, I'll, I'll send it to mm. you. But hey, I don't want to talk too much about me. I mean, we can if, <laughs> I if know, you we want can get to. caught up in that. No, it's fine. <laughs> I know. You, you can know. interview me. Yeah, exactly. Lead the way. We'll we'll say <laughs> that for my podcast. But no. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. So. I'm going to ask you just a couple of background questions because I know yeah. some of this, but the listeners don't know this. Yeah. So who are you working with right now? I know some of the people you're working with right now, but tell us who you're working with now. Currently, my roster consists of Johnny Swim, yep, husband and wife, singer-songwriter, folk, soul, you know, Johnny Swim based in L.A., Propaganda which yep. is author, podcast host, hip-hop artist. Got a singer, songwriter. Well, she's a songwriter. She's also a pop artist. Her name's Lindsay Sweat, and yep. she does music under the name Trella. Super cool. Do you know her at all? I feel like you guys think would have I crossed do. paths at yeah, some think. point in time. And then I work with a author, uh, podcaster by the name of Ian Cron, who wrote the book The Road Back to You, Yep. Enneagram typology podcast. Yep. So a little bit of everything every day keeps me on my toes because it's not just music, or putting out singles, and you're just constantly learning different things. So I'm, I'm excited about it, though. It keeps me moving. Yeah. Then that's one thing I love about you is the way you, you're not genre specific. If something touches you, if you're excited about something, you'll jump in no matter what the genre may be. You know, like you got hip hop and you got folk and you got kind of, <laughs> 
pop worship and then you got kind of yeah. singer songwriter and then you got like a, a podcaster and then propagandist writing books johnny swim is doing a tv show yep. ian cron is doing speaking engagements and podcasting so it's like when you say manager i don't think people realize how many things you're playing quarterback for yeah it's crazy i've been thinking about this a lot it's funny like the word manager I was sitting at some kind of like songwriter artist get together that a friend of mine was doing the other night. And one thing it kind of shocked me is there was a young artist there. They've been doing stuff for a little while now. They had to have a band, but he was like, you know, I don't understand management. And I was mm-hmm. like, what's up? Cause he's going on his third or fourth manager right now. And he was yeah. like, isn't it just like a glorified, you know, secretary or assistant? And I was <laughs> like, that's probably why you're on your, third or fourth manager right now. I was like, this is funny. I I think that's kind of how there is some perception. It's like this one perception of management is probably, you know, glorified assistant or secretary or whatever they want to call it. But there's a tension there that's probably happening that they're not talking about, which is that 15% of nothing is nothing. And so when you don't make a lot Mm. of money and you're still frustrated, And then you have that feeds into that other perception of like, well, if I can just get a manager, then everything's going to fall into place. And so when you have these two little tensions, you either have people that are bitter or not. I like to consider myself a business partner with these people. I think it just helps me and my team to think about it differently. Manager is fine, but really business partner, I'm 15% owner in what this business does. And so like 15% of nothing or 20% of nothing is nothing. And so if we're all not moving forward, you know, the business doesn't move forward. And I've always tried to like reframe my mind to just be like, I'm a business manager. That's why I'll wake up and I might check on, you know, with the business manager and go, what's the money looking like? Or I might call this person. I have access to all of these things to help us both move. So, Yep. But yeah, I thought that dude was pretty funny. Totally. And I even when I was, you know, thinking about this interview, I was like, and, and, and even with, you know, the guys I work with, like, manager seems to be a little bit of an antiquated term almost in music because it doesn't really speak to what you're actually doing. Like, when you think of a manager, and I'm not saying managers don't work hard, but like, if you're managing a restaurant, you're managing yeah. a department store, they're working hard, but the job is different it's a different type of job like they're sort of taking hopefully they're i mean they have to like be creative i guess but they're taking the lead from the general manager and then from the owner of the company as you're almost like a mayor of a city right (laughs) like you're making sure things happen on time it's not well the other thing is you're not just making sure things happen you actually have to like creatively come up with ways to make them happen yeah, like that's probably why I don't have a bunch of people on my roster. Yeah. Because if I part ways with someone, you know, I'm a relational person. So you're yeah. right. Like I I was like that as an AR guy. Like I wanted to not be the person that just trophy collects because everybody else wanted that nice little shiny, you know, calling card. Oh, I've yeah. signed this person or I've done that. Cause I know that that emotion is fleeting and when it doesn't work, I want to be able to still have passion and know why I'm actually in it. 
I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that there's times that I'm just like, man, I maybe I should have just snagged whatever was happening at the moment. But it's yeah. just so hard for me to to look someone in the eye or look, you know, an artist or a client or something like that and be like, oh, no, I believe in this. I believe in this when I really am not in it. I just can't do it. It just doesn't yep. get me up in the morning. And get me <laughs> Dude, I totally understand. <laughs> I totally understand. I don't know how you would work for someone that you didn't believe in. And, there's a lot of people you know, that do it. Yeah. There's a lot of people, colleagues that I know that do it and they feel totally fine about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess there's nothing wrong with it. I just don't know how I could do right. it. Well, yeah, be, that's that's probably because we're forced, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're both <laughs> either. No, I forced. hate that. Like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> I know. oh, you're a four. You must be in the woods writing poems and crying. <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> what did you have a perception of a manager to be? Like, you know, you're pretty well seasoned, and I've known you in the young and hungry yeah. phase of your life, and I know you in the more calm and zen you know, phase. So, I mean, did you have that same kind of view as that other young artist that was like, Oh, you guys are just getting paid to, to be a personal assistant. Did you have that kind of idea? I don't know that I did. I think there was a point when like you, you could just you sell your music on iTunes. I was like, yeah. maybe we can just sell music on iTunes. I don't know that I ever thought I could manage myself. Well, honestly, in those early years, like especially touring, we did our first tours with no tour manager. Yeah. We kind of had a booking agent. We had some label support, but see, I didn't know what the label role, what the management role, what the booking role, like I didn't even know what those roles were. I didn't even know how it worked. And we would show up to a show and they wouldn't have a sound system. I'd be like, why don't they have a sound system? I don't understand. It's like, oh, later on I looked back, it's like, oh, that's a tour manager's job. No one advanced the show. And people don't realize that's a word, advance. When you do a show, yep. you know, you call you ahead to <laughs> make tell sure. Tell them what you need. <laughs> yeah. To yeah. make sure that the venue's there, <laughs> that, <laughs> that people are coming, that someone's going to unlock the doors. You know, but right. I was so young. like I didn't even know what these different roles were because I was such a independent, like, we're doing it on my own. And I came out of the 90s and read a bunch of books about, like, how the music industry screws people. And in the 90s especially, they really did. Like, you know, oh, you yeah. don't hear about this anymore because I think that it's changed a lot. I mean, some things are still the same. Like, if you're not making money, no one's going to partner with you at the end of the day. Like, a label is a business and they're not going to, like, work with you if they don't see a way to make money at some point. But in the 90s, and I'm sure you know stories and you don't have to share any <laughs> if you don't want yeah. to, but... You know, you hear as these long stories. As we keep the names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Away. But you hear these stories where a label would sign a band or an artist that's similar to the one they're promoting just mm. to shelve them. Oh, yeah. Well, I have yeah, a friend. To, to beat out the competition. I mean, that just to, once again, it's like, well, yeah, we'll yeah. sign them up, shelve them, get this other project out, then try to revisit it, and then try yep. to draft off of the thing you saw in the first place. You know, so literally they would sign you and then and then they wouldn't let you do anything. Yeah. You know, maybe give you a little advance or something. I don't think that happens very much anymore. Yeah, it's like, I don't think, well, I think it doesn't exist because everyone that's coming up right now that's an artist is very aware that they 
have just as much ability to access an audience as a label does. Yeah. You know, and everybody's opinion is going to vary. So I just want to make sure it's clear. Like everything I'm saying is my opinion yeah. <laughs> based off of my, <laughs> yeah. you know, life in this business, which doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't mean I'm wrong. It just means this is kind of how I do things. But yeah, one of the biggest things that I've seen change is not that you asked this question, but I'm just yeah, thinking yeah. back on that. Like, why can something like that happen? And I think it's because if you look back in the 90s and 80s, everything was very channel driven, right? So if you were an artist located in Cincinnati, Ohio, and you wanted to break into the New York market, mm-hmm. you literally had to drive to New York. If you wanted to break into Columbus and Cleveland, you know, there was no, hey, let me just throw it up. And then you realize, oh, I'm in Columbus from Cincinnati. Yeah, it's only a couple-hour drive, but it's a whole set of people. And then how do I get into Tower Records in Columbus, Tower Records in Cleveland, New York, all that stuff? Oh, I need a sales rep. You know, everything was so channel-driven. So as an artist, you did depend on radio, the label, the sales team, the right management, because they had a kind of a Ponzi scheme happening. You know, yeah. that's why everybody was able to live nice. And I always hate that. I'm sure you come into that and you're like, man, back in the good old days or back in the good old days. <laughs> and I feel like my entire career has, has missed all of the good seasons. <laughs> it's like I would just finally go from like working Starbucks and all these part time jobs. And I'd finally get into like, let's say, uh, uh, oh, now I'm, I'm an A&R dude. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, budgets are tight. You know, digital's happening. It's not like the good old days. And it, I've always missed those moments. But yeah. I look back on it, it's just not saying that there wasn't good people there or people that believed in it. But they would just say, I'm going to scoop up these three, put this one out first. And literally the artist had to wait because yeah. they couldn't go and just upload it like they do now. I'm not anti-label or anti-team, but I am anti-like. If you're an artist and you go, oh, that manager manages X, Y, and Z, so therefore that's the reason I'm going to go there, or that label puts out X, Y, and Z, so therefore I'm going to go there, and you think that it's equally going to result in you getting something, you're you're already looking at it the wrong way. Yeah, you know, totally. So it's pretty interesting that they yeah. Out, but well, let me let me pick your brain about a couple of yeah. things. So. The business stuff is exciting. That's fun to talk about. I got some other stuff I want to get to a little bit later. So, but let me ask you a couple of business questions. One is, you know, I've had artists, you know, DM me like, hey, can you put me in touch with the manager? Can you put me in touch with the booking agent? And I usually tell them that, like, you probably don't want to seek out a manager and a booking agent. Okay. I always tell them that, like, all these people, all these different roles we can talk about, and you've played a lot of these roles, AR, tour manager, artist yeah. manager, yeah. marketing. I mean, you've done all the different things, right? College radio, yeah, yeah. merchandise, you know, all, yeah, kind of had to. I've even tried to be an artist at one point in time. That's yeah. why I gave it up and went <laughs> the other direction. But I do understand that that <laughs> feeling. If I could just meet that one person. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm not telling them that they don't need these things. But I, do, I feel like if you have to... It's kind of like a relationship. If you have to beg somebody to work with you, then you're always going to be at the bottom of their totem pole. Yeah. You want to attract those people. Exactly. You, If you're not doing the type of work that is 
once you're sort of attracting some of those people, then I feel like you can reach out and say, hey, so-and-so over here, look what I'm doing. These people are interested. Like, shouldn't you be interested in me too? Or can we work together? But if no one is interested in what you're doing, it doesn't mean that you're not good. It just means you haven't created enough momentum to pull in probably the team that you want and they're going to be frustrated or some of the there's different managers aren't managers by the way there are other people who call themselves managers who are not jay king (laughs) right who are going to charge young artists a bunch of money and not do a whole lot of work for them right you know it's like so it's not because there is a volume side to it right like if you get enough out there and even if it makes x y and z you can make up your numbers or whatever you have to meet by having yeah. a lot of that. But I, I find that almost impossible to actually do. Even if you're at a bigger management company and you're yeah. associated with it, you're, you know, renting a chair like you would a hair salon, right? And yeah. they have a quota and they might say, you can use our fancy office to bring in your client and say, look what you did. And then yeah. we have services but ultimately, when it starts to be billed back to the manager and the manager's not making any money, and so then the services go away and all that kind of stuff. And it just yeah. seems seems extremely difficult. But, you know, like I said, everybody it does it in certain ways. There's also people that just want to manage, you know, artists that or people that just do covers. They go, yeah. it's a lot easier. We can rack up a volume and do it. But I think that's good advice. I always say the things that I look for, because I'll take a meeting with almost anyone at a certain point, but I also have told, you know, people, Hey, I don't think you need this right now. Like this is Mm. a, this is a moment where what's going to happen is there's not enough in motion to manage. And so therefore you're going to just get frustrated. You know what I mean? Cause that's the other missing piece is that, and you should know this as a, artist who believes in himself imagine saying to that that to you at 20 something years old like hey yeah. you, need, you need to get more you know because <laughs> when you're in the 20 something early 30s y- you are the more in your yeah, mind yeah. you know you're yeah. like well, what do you mean like all i need is for people to hear what i have to say like i've got yeah. the songs i've got the look i've got the this <laughs> and i'm like man i wish the business actually worked that way I really do. I wish it was about like how your mom felt about your music or how you felt about your music. But we, the biggest difference also is numbers don't lie, you know? So now everyone can see what your streams are. Everyone can see how many tickets you've sold. Everyone can see what the ball looks like rolling. There's no more, you know, you can hype it up just a little bit, but as soon as somebody starts doing digging, it's like, okay, so we got some work to do here. Yeah, or totally. the other way where you're like, oh crap, like this is really amazing. Like, you do need to plug in. Let's go. Yeah. Well, that goes back to rule number two nobody is successful because they're good. <laughs> Everyone in the music industry is good. Like, right. nobody's not good. And some people are better than others, but generally, success isn't about being good. It's about putting in the hard work and figuring out how to earn the trust of your audience. I have a question for you. Yeah, yeah. Not to derail, but my question no, is, let's go for it. from a curiosity standpoint, how much do you believe in luck? I, when somebody says, like, you got to add luck into well, the whole mix. Do you believe in that? Yeah, so I do believe in luck. I, I also have, like, a really high philosophical view of luck. You know, like, 
Luck is you like do. you're John Marvin Bellin. That, that's the only way you should be. I know, at it. but I mean, no. like I was born in this country, right? Yep. It has a lot of problems. But if you want to make it in music, being born in the U.S. is great. There are opportunities. You know, like I didn't have a hard time affording a guitar. Like read about Bob Marley, his first guitar he built out of a can and a, like a broomstick. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he had, he was less lucky than me in some ways and more right. lucky and than then me had in other lucky ways. In other ways, yeah. I know he was lucky in the sense that he was born at the perfect time for the person that he was. Like I'm a massive Bob Marley fan. He's one of my heroes, right? Yeah. Like. He's such a beautiful story. You're a huge Bob Marley fan too, right? Oh yeah, I love Bob Marley. Yeah, it's... Bob Marley's his dad is white, his mom's black. The kids he grew up with didn't want to play with him because he was too light-skinned, but his father's family wouldn't even though if you see pictures he looks just like his dad in the face. His father's family refused to have anything to do with him or even admit that he existed. So he kind of lives between the cracks and yeah. that tension of him living between two worlds. As he grows up, and all of a sudden, Jamaica, it becomes this hotbed for, like, capitalism and communism and this sort of this proxy war between, like, communist countries and capitalist countries, you know, the Russia and the United States. And, you know, there's two different political movements, and Bob Marley's already lived his whole life in the middle, right? He's Having to, like, yep. navigate two worlds. And so he's lived in that tension his whole life, and then it comes to this point where he's, like— he brings the two leaders. I don't know if you've seen it or if you've heard the story about how he gets shot. Yeah. You know, and then he did the concert the next day with a bullet in his arm. He brought the two leaders up on stage and made them like shake hands in front of everyone. I mean, so he was both lucky and unlucky in different ways that I'm lucky and unlucky. But right. had Bob Marley been born at a different time, had he been born under a different set of circumstances? You know, if his dad had welcomed him into the family, if his mother, you know, if he'd been fit in more with his sort of darker skinned, you know, relatives and friends, like, would he have been the like superstar that even in death he still is? Like, I don't know. Right. So, but I think, I, I think luck is huge, but also what you do with it. Well, I guess there's two ways to look at it, right? Like, number one, like, you have things you can change and things you can't change. And I think it's not worth always thinking about the things that you can't change. I think you focus on the things that you can do. And I think too many people focus on what they can't do. Yeah, so there's luck involved, but uh, what am I trying to say? What is your position on luck? I think luck matters. No, I think it's kind of like where you're at. I've got a partner that I do management with, and I used to hate the word luck. You yeah, because I, I didn't like this idea of some uncontrollable yeah. force that can, you know, come and go as it pleases. It can, you know, I just had a wrong frame of mind. It's like, oh, luck, you know, they're just lucky. And it's like, well, what am I? Because I can easily get into the, the mindset and list out all the things and be like, oh, I'm just unlucky. Yeah. But it was like when I met him, you know, as it, he has this phrase, it's called will it to happen. And it's really just about like, you know, staying in motion. And yep. that really stuck with me because I'm like, if I can, for me personally, stay in motion, even through the good and the bad, 
even through whatever situation, wherever I've been, I look back and I go, oh, that opportunity came and you can identify it as luck or whatever, but it, it that came about because I didn't stop. I was in motion and let's say, you know, I didn't get the position that I wanted or I didn't get the artist that I wanted or something happened and that artist didn't work out. Well, sometimes people hold so tight to these external things that mm. they make their landing place of luck about this big yeah. where I'm yeah. like, I need to make my landing place this big, meaning yeah. just always be looking, always be in motion, all, try to have a lot of self-awareness, try to have a lot of like, just make your landing pad for luck a lot bigger. Yeah. And I think even just you going through Bob Marley and all the stuff that he the tension and things like that. It's like he still didn't keep his area or his space for luck this big. He always kept it this big. Yeah. And so there, and you know, wherever it landed, he could adjust and he could move. Yeah. I just was curious about that because I think that's the thing that is missing. Sometimes it's not so much about one song. It's not so much about how talented you are. It's not so much about what manage you get, what label you get, whatever. Yeah. It's about the fact that if all of that was taken away, will you still stay in motion? Yeah. Will you still will you still be in motion and still, you know, do it so that your landing pad of luck can be bigger for things to yeah. land in it. And when you compartmentalize and you're like, no, it's got to be this way and it has to be that song and it's got to be me writing it all and it's got to be me this dog, it's got to be that. There's your landing pad. And guess what? People land in these small little landing pads of luck. And that's usually me as a manager. What I hear is like, well, they did it. Oh, that's (laughs) this like crazy anomaly that happened. And they don't really know the backstory, but they are like, well, they did it. I had a guy, I got into a heated debate with a guy one time who's talking about, he's like, you should put out two records a year, at least two records a year. I was like, who can put out two records a year? I mean, you can put out like a B-size, you can put out a covers record, but like talking about two records a year, he's like, the Beatles put out two records a year. I was like, the Beatles, that's like saying everyone should play like the 96 Bulls, right? Right, right. Like, yeah, it- like the greatest of all time. Like, not just the one greatest player, but the greatest team that ever played of all time. Like, you're telling me, like, I should be able to do that. Yeah, just play with them. Just 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 play like Michael Jordan. Yeah, just just score, like, what, 7,500 points? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I I bet you if you go back and you talk to the Beatles, there probably was a totally different strategy for why they put out two albums a year, why they had to do it. You know, like, all those things... It's just funny, like, I said this to somebody the other day, I'm like, you know, it's it's so interesting to see creative people, artists, watch documentaries of other creative people yeah. and artists, because it's like, they see it all up there, you know, you just named one thing, it's like, oh, Bob Marley had to make a guitar from da-da-da-da, it's like, yeah. they admire this, like, crazy struggle but when they look back at themselves, they don't want to linger in that struggle. They're so yeah. so focused on trying to get out, and it's everybody else's fault, or they got to do this angle, or they got to do that angle. And it's like, dude, you just watched a whole documentary, and you were loving the struggle of their life, and which led to success. 
Yeah. So try to enjoy a little bit of the struggle because that way, you know, it's going to be even sweeter. You know what I mean? And, and adjust yeah. along the way, but it's, we like the story. We just don't like to live it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, when we and you talk about our story and we talk about nobody wanted me to sign this or you say, you know, I got better songs than this or whatever. That was not like some kind of glorious moment. The only reason we're here to be able to talk about it in a, in a fond way is because, you know, we kept going and yep. we battled through different things. Not me and you, but just the stuff that you had to learn the hard way on stuff that I had to learn the hard way on. Pretty interesting. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to visit makersandmystics.com to explore our library of over 200 artist interviews and conversations.